I'm Alka Khuri and host of the podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell teaching film literature gender and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is Deepthi Nawal, India's acclaimed and award-winning actor who's acted in over 100 films, most of which can be classified as indie or art cinema, where she sensitively portrays the changing roles of women in India. Nawal is also a poet, painter, and a photographer. with several exhibitions to her credit. Today I'll be talking to her about her memoir, A Country Called Childhood, a book that highlights the external pressures of growing up during a politically contentious time and the adaptability of childhood. In this book, Deepthi Nawal speaks in great detail about the significance of imagination and the arts in her childhood. The memoir illustrates the value of the relationships in Nawal's life to her evolution. from her parents and family to her friends and to anyone she's interacted with at the root of this book is Nawal's capacity for empathy shown numerous times throughout the book she writes about herself in relation to emotions experiences and other people by focusing on her childhood in amritsar Nawal gives the reader an idea of just who the young woman embarking on a new chapter in new york city is a tenacious original inspired soul ready to make interesting art deepthi joins me from her home in mumbai welcome to the show thank you alka it's such a pleasure to talk to you deepthi let's begin by talking about your work just a little bit what inspires you are your performances always drawn from empathy that you've been storing away all your life what happens when you have difficulty understanding people for example your grandfather how do you find empathy what's the process if you're struggling to tap into that ever since from my childhood you know i somehow seem to have been making notes mental notes and uh, storing them in my emotional reservoir <laughs> as i put it it just keeps going into that one bit where you can draw from any time when you want not consciously but i believe the process is subconscious you know so uh, i wouldn't see as a very conscious effort to draw from this that or the other incident from my childhood or or through my life but i guess that's just the way you look at life i think i picked it up from the way my mother reacted to things when i was small you know when we used to go for a after dinner walk i remember the way my used to look at life the way she would react the way she would perceive things and that kind of got into me as well and uh, became a habit to look at things around and then feel what the other person would be feeling you know so that becomes little empathetic i guess you know mm-hmm. that's right and yeah. talk about your imagination what's the connection between your imaginative childhood and your art i had a i had a parallel world in my head 
which is what my imaginary world was. And there was an issue whether in this book, where I write everything so real and so, you know, starkly uh, honest. At the same time, I'm bringing in my imaginary world and it was slightly unnerving for the publishing house when they saw that my imaginary world was interwoven into the real. And they said, how are we going to justify that? You know, at one end, you are talking about the reality of the wars and the and it being a, a border city, Amritsar, so close to Lahore. You're talking about everything that you've heard and seen and experienced, and then you go into your imaginary thing. So I was unable to intertwine it with the rest of the narrative. And because I thought, oh my God, this is all going to be thrown out. So I created a separate chapter, which is called My Imaginary World, so that I could put all that into one, one space and then get accepted for it. So I think it has always been my strong point and it helps me with my art as well, whether it's acting, painting, writing, my imaginary world helps me. And it has been with me ever since I was a child. I was a dreamer. I was somebody who was forever in her own little dunya, you know? And there were characters there, like I had names for all the buffaloes across in the cow shed, in the buffalo shed. And then I had names for people, like the guy who dyed our chunis and clothes and fabric. For us, I would call him Color Singh. And uh, <laughs> there was Charlie, one of the buffaloes, and there was Black Velvet. You know, that was part of my imaginary world. It was connected to my imaginary world, though they were real people. And there were significant characters around me. So I guess um, that stayed with me very strongly throughout here. Yeah. For me, I look at it as, a, as my reality. I look at my imaginary world as my reality. You know, everybody has their reality. Everybody perceives the real situation in a different way. And I think my perception of the real, you could call it imaginary, but it is my reality. Knowing that two of your family members, your mother and your cousin Indu, both gave up on an acting career. But what yeah. gave you the drive as a young child to commit to this field? I think uh, it came from Mama first. It came from her. The desire to do something where people were going to watch me and I was going to perform. Her love for dance and drama and music, I think, that kind of, you know, became my first inspiration. That you didn't have to live life. You know, you grow up, you get married, you make babies, and then you die. I thought, no, there was another way of living this life. You know, you could have a creative life. Your journey could be a creative journey. And other things, if they fall in place, if they happen, fine. But basically, you would be an artist. You would be a creative person. And I think that first came from Mama and then Indu Bhaiya's very strong desire to become an actor. And he used to tease me about it because I had this little sadhana cut on my forehead, this fringe, the French cut. <laughs> so because he used to tease me about sadhana and, you know, I mean, nobody looked like sadhana, but he would just say, oh, sadhana, you know, do you want to go to, should I take you to sadhana? You want to go to sadhana? So that became like, uh, you know, a thing and of course my own fascination for cinema when I main thing I think after my mama as a child I think the first thing that was my own fascination for the big screen you know when I would sit in the theater I would 
look at the big screen and I would think to myself that one day I'm going to be up there on the big screen and everybody who's sitting around here with me, they are going to look at me. They're going to relate to me and they will cry when I cry. They will be happy when I'm happy. They will be able to connect. There'll be an emotional connect like I have this emotional connect with Meena Kumari and all these other actors on the big screen. So someday I'll be up there and all these people down here will have this connect with me. So this was the big dream. I didn't know anything about fame and money at that time. I just wanted to reach out to the audience in a way how actors did, you know. So that was during my childhood. Those were the first things that really mattered to me. The films itself, watching a film, being impacted by a movie, my mother first, and then the movies. And then as I grew to be an adolescent, then in Dubai, putting this in my head, that you could be an actor, you could join films, you could be an actress. So that, I think, all that. And your dream came true so beautifully. Yes, I think I was lucky, even though I floundered this way, that way. In, <laughs> but I eventually came around and stayed with my dream. And I made it a point to see it fulfill during this lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what you need, persistence, despite all drawbacks. Yes, yes. And so talk about the ways in which you draw parallels between different forms of art. You're an actor, you're a poet, you're a painter, you're a photographer, you're a writer. Do they satisfy yeah. different things in you? Yes, I think I like to believe that my first love is acting, but I actually started writing when I was very young. I started writing poems and when I was in school, I would, because I was a big dreamer, I would sit somewhere in the middle of my classroom on the side, look out towards the green fields and the sky and be dreaming most of the time. I managed to get through school, uh, you know, very averagely as a student. I wasn't the studious kind that was Didi, my sister, you know, Smithy. But uh, I, you know, because of having my... My nature was more of a dreamer and somebody was mostly absent-minded in class. So I stayed a lot with my inner world. So that's where the poetry sprang from initially. Yeah. So I would say that writing has been my earliest of passions, you know. Then came acting. And then even when I was a kid, mama would put me on the dining table and make me sketch because she was such a fabulous painter, my mother. She was the painter. She was the hugely talented woman, you know, with all these uh, gifts. And she made it a point to teach me how to sketch and to draw, um, how to use color. And she made me conscious of the different shades in every color, the different hues, different shades. And she would talk color in her day-to-day -day life, you know, she would correct me. If I said, you know, purple, she would say burgundy or she would say something, you know, to correct and to give you the... So all these things really mattered. It's the way I started looking at life, the way I would see different shades in whites and different shades in blacks and, you know, all those things, the clouds, I mean, the good part of being a dreamer was for, I was forever up on the terrace looking at the sky and, and, and uh, uh, looking at the clouds and, you know, 
these were the things that brought about my poetry, I think, first. And I think poetry happened first. And then my love for acting cinema happened after that. And uh, as I went to school, I, Sister Joanie or Sister Germaine taught us uh, painting. I learned how to use oil colors and stuff like that. And then, of course, in, in New York, I majored in painting. That was my major. So I guess for me, everything is interrelated. I don't look at it as a separate this thing for one of my emotional needs or creative needs. I use one thing for another need. It's not like that, Alka. You know, I think they are all interconnected. It is, I think, what I've experienced is, what do I have at hand? What medium do I have at hand? If I'm not acting, see the days when I'm shooting and I'm, I'm enacting scenes and I'm doing a film, I don't feel the need to do anything else. Maybe scribble in my diary. That's about all. You know, I don't have the mental space to write a poem. I don't. I'm totally consumed by the role that I'm playing. And it's only when I come back and find my quieter time with myself, that's when writing surfaces again. And I want to go to my sketching table and I want to sketch something. I want to, you know, maybe draw something. So I don't see it as a separate thing. Of course, I have to give you an example. I first wrote a poem called Black Wind. You know, it was a very dark, deep and a dark phase in my life and I was going through uh, depression and I was fighting depression. And so this poem came about, I first made a painting. When I made the painting, also called Black Wind, I felt that no, it doesn't suffice. I have much more to say. You know, this just wouldn't say what I want to say. This just doesn't, it just is one static image. But there's so much internally happening in my head that I want to express. So I stayed with the painting. I would look at the painting for long and I would feel, but I haven't said my thing. I haven't quite gone there. That's when I had to pick up the paper and pen and start writing. And that's how Black Wind, the poem Black Wind came about. So, uh, you know, it is interconnected. Sometimes I'm doing a scene and I feel, oh, but haven't I gone through this? Haven't I done this before? And I realize, yes, it has happened in life somewhere. And then sometimes in life, something happens and I feel, oh, haven't I been through this? And then I realize, oh, but that's in a film that I had a situation like this. And I, I mean, it's forever fluid and it is interconnected and it is flowing in and out of each other, all my art forms. That's the way I see it. Yeah, that says so beautifully Sounds put. a bit chaotic. <laughs> no, but... no, not at all. Not at all. This is so beautiful. <laughs> Talk about the impact that your friends had in your life as a young girl. Their impression on how you saw yourself and how you interacted with each other and how you interacted with the others. One of my earliest friends, her name is Pemu. She had this thing for literature, for writing. Not She was not a writer herself. She was a voracious reader also and, uh, you know, a literature enthusiast. That was something that I picked up from her. Though we were in school, we were supposed to study this book and that book and this writer and that writer. But that was like, you know, it's, we have to study. So, wo karna hai, karna pad raha hai. But uh, with Pemu, with Prem Lata Goenka, she would read and she would discuss, you know. 
we would discuss poetry. It's with Pemu that I could note down. It's for her. When I would read something and I would write note down four lines in my book, it was to be shared with Pemu. And then, of course, there was no no, my totally binda side of me came, came in the forefront and found expression with a friend like Nandini Puri, we used to call her Nonu, where uh, we were both very adventurous. Me, in my own quiet way, and she was very extrovertish. I wasn't, I was a total introvert, but I would participate in all those, uh, you know, uh, naughty things, like uh, going off and sitting on a gadda when the school bell is ringing. Everybody's supposed to come inside and sit in class. We are going off on a gadda and taking all these gadda rides and stuff like that. But one of the girls was Nita Devichan. She came from uh, Shimla. She came when I was in high school already. I was already in the eighth standard, finishing eighth and going into ninth. That's when Nita joined us, my class. And uh, immediately we became a group. Four of us, we used to call ourselves the Nirala group <laughs> in school because Hindi poetry was new to us. It came to us later in the sixth or the seventh class with Miss Sudesh's class. So um, I was very intrigued by all these poets. And then Nita came into our school and she was writing poetry left, right, center. She was hugely talented and we were all very enamored by her. First of all, she came from Shimla and uh, one always felt that, you know, Dalhousie and Simla had a very nice ambience and, you know, you were lucky if you were growing up in these little hill stations and you didn't have to be saddled in the walled city of Amritsar. <laughs> Though we went to a Catholic school, the Sacred Heart Convent, and I was being brought up by all these European nuns. But still, there was some fascination I had for the hills. So anybody who was living in the hills, I was very enchanted by the idea that somebody's come from Simla or Dalhousie school and has joined our school. Nita, of course, in another way, she was suffering from uh, a mental uh, condition, which uh, made her very vulnerable. And she was somebody I came to, uh, I mean, I, I was struggling to understand that aspect of her. You know, it was not easy for us because we didn't know at that time. We, one had heard of mental illnesses. We didn't quite understand what schizophrenia was. We didn't understand what it was. We heard you know, some village woman had a fit and all that. And, you know, somebody has a fit when they are in a mela or in the temple, in the queues which are going into temples. I wasn't a temple going person, but I've heard of those things. With Nita and her condition, her mental condition, it was the first time I started looking at this aspect with, you know, at close quarters and had great empathy because she was somebody who was so talented. And for somebody like with that kind of talent as a writer, as an actor, as an orator, like she was so hugely talented. And then for her to be suffering with this mental illness was something which was very drastic for me to comprehend. It was difficult. And I just only learned how to empathize with her condition. And that is probably one of the things. I did. When she was a lesbian, we didn't know what it was to be a lesbian. We had no clue. We were all taken by surprise. I mean, we didn't know. We found her behavior very strange, but we couldn't place a finger on it. Also, another way of feeling 
another kind of feeling. It's it's today we don't blink when we hear uh, about somebody having a, a different sexual preference. But nah, times have changed and, uh, you know, so thank God for that. But uh, at that time, she was suffering because of that. It wasn't easy for her family. It wasn't easy for people around her. So she was singled out and she was like looked at as a very strange person in the midst of all these very normal, so-called normal middle-class girls, uh, you know, growing up in this convent school. So uh, I think I learned a lot during that phase, you know, the ninth and 10th standard. And then to see Nita being put away in the mental hospital and going and experiencing that also and seeing her, uh, you know, get this fit and being able to see that part of it was her own doing and then part of it was so beyond her, you know. She started to show us what a Mirgi ka Dora is. She would say, see, I can enact it so well now, look. But then it went beyond and then I kind of realized that things were so intermingled. You couldn't draw the line. It was very difficult to draw the line where it's enactment and where it becomes so real that, you know, everything becomes out of hand. My seniors in my school is another thing I'd like to talk about, especially Kiran Bedi and Neelam Mansing. Neelam Mansing went on to become this major theater personality of Punjab. And till date, she's so active. She does these wonderful plays. She's based in Chandigarh and her theater is really, she has a great body of work. And Kiran Bedi, everybody knows. She encouraged me to write when I was writing some silly stuff. <laughs> you know, I was writing some silly poem and trust her to say, okay, this is good. So Deepti, you must continue to write because with each poem, you will be writing better and better. And I can't believe that she could encourage me at that time. But thank God for that because at home, I was too shy to show to my parents what I wrote. No, it was all very hidden, very secret. It was only part of my diary. So these are the people. These are people in school, my friends, you know, that I learned a lot from. My parents' contribution has been tremendous. I would say they have been my two gurus, if at all I've had any guru in my life. I don't believe in religious gurus. I like life to teach me as much in an abstract way. I learn all the time learning and from my reading and from interacting with people. But yes, my two gurus have been Mama and Pitaji. Pitaji for his enthusiasm for academics and his drive to work, 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 and to, uh, you know, make better your life and to grow and to improve yourself at all costs to achieve something more. There's always something more to achieve. That I got from my father. Mm -hmm. And your parents also influenced in a big way what your career they, choices they, were. And how was that? And were there any frictions? What your father told you versus what your mother told you? Uh, my mother was scared when I wanted to, you know, I was living in America and I was studying art. So my father, my parents thought I would further go to Paris and study, pursue art, right? Painting. And then I dropped this bombshell on them saying, I want to go back to India and I want to become an actress. So they thought they didn't know where this was coming from. It was a big jolt because there was no such 
no backing, really. There was nobody in the family who was in Bombay or film industry or even in the in the theater or nothing. So how was I going to start from where and, and go where? Uh, you know, so my mother was petrified. She came with very strong objection to this whole idea of me going to India while they were living in America. I mean, if they were in India, she felt that, yes, things could be manageable. She could be with me. She could help me go around with me. But in America, I mean, I want to travel all the way back. And, you know, so that came from Mama. I just kept persisting. I just kept, you know, trying to persuade them while they kept trying their best to dissuade me. But uh, at the end of it, I think my father saw that, you know, I, I really, really want to do, passionately want to do this with my life. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to become an actress. And so he said, okay, so if something you want this bad, maybe you probably do a good job of it. So give it a go. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, I said, you can give me a year. He said, okay, you take two years, but uh, give it your best shot. If it doesn't work out, don't come back with any complexes. <laughs> that you was know, really you wonderful. You can always yeah, pick up from where you left and that's it. I had his uh, financial support and his model support. And then, of course, with my first film itself, they knew they could see that I am this actor that I imagined that I was. So I do good with my life. Excellent. I'm so glad that your father supported you. Yes, there are lots yes. of us with dreams and, um, and you know, parents are too scared for us to be, you know, making a leap to fulfilling those dreams because they worry about us. And in the yes. process, they actually squish many of our desires and, and aspirations. But I'd like to go back to Amritsar once again. Talk about your house. You know, it seems uh-huh. to have somewhat of a, a surreal and imaginary and cinematic quality to it. Yeah, it's because... I lived there when I was a child, you know, so that's why the house, I mean, of course, it was this four-story looming structure in the middle of the walled city, right next to the mosque. The mosque was overlooking the terrace where I slept for all those years, you know, all the summer months throughout summer, uh, sleeping there in the dome overlooking, you know, with the minarets and then watching the clouds and and listening to the azan and you know all those are the images i kind of grew up with to a child's mind it was pretty scary at night when i had to go down to the loo and my father made it a point to never hold my finger and walk me down but he would say i'm here i'm holding the light the lamp for you now you go down on your own and <laughs> going down was such an ordeal it was petrifying for me i would imagine because you know, I, I kind of knew. <laughs> I knew that there were these creatures who lived in the house and they came out only in the night. <laughs> and I imagined, this is my imaginary world. And I, I knew that they would come out only in the night when we are all gone up to on the terrace to sleep. They're all coming out from these corners and they are all over the place. So how to go down? You know, how to go to the loo and then how I used to I mean, I used to go down super carefully, one step at a time. And then how I used to run up, you know, <laughs> pounding my way up all the three floors. And finally, you know, it used to be a nightly ordeal every night because mm-hmm. you had to go to the loo in the middle of the night. And this is what it was. But the house, you know, 
It's Bougainvillea, it's Big Veda, the courtyard, the veranda, which played such a role in my childhood. The veranda, you know, during the winters, we would sit out in the sun. And during the summer afternoons, the chicks would be drawn and we'd be asked to, you know, lie down for a siesta and how we would want to instead be playing in the hot summer in the courtyard and I mean, the most fascinating part of this house was the Mochi Mohalla between the mosque and the house. There was this little winding lane to the back of the house where my grandfather had given that space to the the refugees, the cobbler clan that came from Pakistan and said, you can make your homes here. You can settle down here. And that's where they lived all through. They're still there. Now those little mud huts have become all concrete and they're all brick structures now. They were very fascinating. There were characters there. They would be singing and playing the dholki and the manjira every night. And that's what we used to go to sleep to, the music from the Mochi Mahalla. You know, and be woken up with the azan five o'clock in the morning. And four o'clock would be Lata Mangeshkar's voice from Sitla Mandir. On the loudspeaker, Jago Mohan Pyare would be the first sound of the morning. You know, every morning, that one song, Jago Mohan Pyare. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Jagari, Jagari, Jag, Kuliya Jagi. I mean, wow. Talk about amazing. your mother's stories about Burma. Mama's, uh, those were the first stories of my life. The first, the very first, I think from the age of three, I remember those stories because we didn't have any other stories. We didn't hear much of Ramayana or Mahabharat stories because my father didn't even believe much in anything. He was a kind of, you know, atheist. So there wasn't much of, you know, stories. For me, they were all only the Burma stories. Mama would narrate to us her Burma stories, her childhood, her growing up years, every night. And we would listen to the same stories over and over. And they became so much part of me they still are they're still very much part of me and she also went to a convent school she went to the Jesus and Mary convent and the Wesley school in Mandalay she was born in Maktila and so I would hear forever from mama you know her yearning for her childhood days there was something about the childhood which is never going to come back You only keep yearning for it. You only remember it with this sense of loss and pride at the same time. You know, there's something, there's a great sense of loss that she felt because they had to leave Burma during the Second World War. They had to walk over the Assam hills. There was this huge exodus of Indians from Burma and they walked over the hills to reach India. And that took them months. And then the partition happened and I was only listening to these stories of displacement and her stories of growing up in those schools with the nuns and the Burmese girls and the Buddhist environment in Burma. I would hear a lot about that, the monks, the Buddhist environment. So for me, it was, I was quite enamored by the simplicity of it all. The simplicity of her life in Burma. Simple, there was so much depth in the way she felt for things, 
how she valued what she had. That is something that I learned from my mother to value the little simple things that you have in life, the simple things that give you joy, to place a huge value on that, you know, and how you want to preserve it, how you want to save it in your memory. I give an example. She would recall how she had this uh, Rangoon Gazette that would come to the house and Mama could place an order, cut out a, a little advertisement, you know, for Qtex. She would, you know, cut it out and fill her name and address and then she would mail it and then she would be waiting for that little Qtex nail polish. Today we call it the nail varnish. I mean, there was so much... Uh, so in such detail, she would tell me about those little things that mattered, you know, little things that would excite her. Like when she did a little play, a small play in school in the 10th or the 9th standard called Florence Nightingale. And I asked my mother, I said, Mama, so did you play Florence Nightingale? She said, no, I played the soldier who is injured. But when Florence Nightingale walks in, holding the lamp, checking everybody where all the injured soldiers are lying around, I get up from the floor and I kiss her shadow on the wall. And that gesture she held so important. For her, it wasn't the most important thing to playing Florence Nightingale. But this soldier and this gesture, it was so important. She was so proud that she did that instead and she was not ashamed or you know cringing about the fact that she didn't get to play nightingale so i mean those little things that remained with me how she addressed the little boy whose mother didn't have a katora and i'm standing with mama and we are you know we are giving away things distributing milk and how she addressed him how i saw from my mother's eyes those are the little things that mm. chota chota that you can find joy in little things. Yeah. You can see beauty in little things. Yeah. And then there was the passing of your siblings. Did it alter the family dynamics at all in the household? Did you feel changes in your relationship to your mother or your sister or how you connected with your brother Gugu? No, I didn't think it altered anything really. I mean, my me and Didi remained in our equation with Mama. It remained the same. Mama, of course, for a few years, she went through depression. She became very pale and she lost weight. She would remain with herself a lot. She couldn't deal with the loss of her three offspring, one after the other. But when Gugu, my brother, came, eight years after I was born, there was great joy. I mean, you could see. But I don't think anything changed between Mama and Didi and me. We remained where we were. In fact, because we were doting on our brother all the time, she could let us manage him. And by then she was teaching in school. She had a job. You know, my parents were working. Dad was working all the time. He was a professor at Hindu college. Mama had joined the school and started working also. So it was Didi and me and Rohit was left to us quite a bit. And uh, I don't remember if we talk about, okay, now a son is born in the family. So does things change between the parents and the daughters? No, none. Not for a bit did I ever think like that. Mm -hmm. No, nothing. Not with my parents. They're far too uh, reasonable people, <laughs> you know. 
and very progressive in their thinking and you know there was no such thing ki ladka ho gaya hai to now we don't have to give importance to the girls now the whole importance will shift to the boy no no such thing in fact my father would always say there's nothing you girls cannot do just because you are girls you decide to do something and you can do it as much as boys can achieve you can also achieve in what made you think the elbow crusade evolve if it did and do you have any suggestions for young girls today who are made to feel intimidated or uncomfortable but might not have the tools to defend themselves yeah it's uh, it's become actually those days because the those times were simpler there was no such crime against women as there is today you know girls need to learn how to defend themselves today's scenario is very bad very very bad that time when we were growing up these were irritants these were things that made you you know cringe but there was no violence against women there was no i mean you heard once in a way there was really not rampant like it is today there were no gang rapes there was no killings it wasn't like this you would feel humiliated of course if teasing is a humiliating experience and being poured and everything all that is very disturbing and humiliating but still i would say it wasn't like today it wasn't like this it wasn't a crime there was nothing violent like that today's it's very unfortunate you know when i go off trekking and hiking in himachal and ladakh on my own for years i did that but today i would tell the girls that no safety has to come first you cannot risk your life you can't do that today things are not the same mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you also mentioned in your book how your outlook on film changed after moving to the united states you know as you were introduced to the american movies and actors of the 1970s in what ways did this broadening of your palette influence what you connected to in art especially film Yeah, I think if I had come to Bombay straight from Amritsar after having uh, had my fill of Hindi cinema, I would have probably only liked to do the mainstream cinema. When I went to America and I saw other films like Taxi Driver and uh, Sir Picos and all those other movies that I realized that it doesn't have to be boy meets girl and then the villain comes in and then everything ends happily. and they live happily ever after there are other themes there are other aspects to be looked into there are other things to be brought into focus and cinema doesn't mean only entertainment it means more so that way it changed it broadened my horizon definitely and i started looking at acting also differently the more realistic you could be the more real you could be on camera the more credible you were you know on screen the more believable you could be mm-hmm. so and also the time coincided with some of the great film directors you know who were invested in art cinema at that time yes you know, around the time when he joined the film industry yes yes absolutely there was a huge big movement when i came back and joined films i didn't want to play the hindi film heroine i just didn't want to i would have fit into it like a glove had i not had this other exposure I mean it was my dream to dance like an Asha Parekh or a Vaidya Rahman <laughs> but no not at the time when I came in and there was this other parallel cinema happening I was 
very fascinated by that. I was completely consumed by that. And that's where I wanted to make my mark. That's what I wanted to do. Somehow that worked for me. I was lucky to have these very interesting filmmakers, Bashu Bhattacharya, Gulzar Saab, Rishikesh Mukherjee, who was a middle path cinema. So was Sai Paranjpe. But they were also the Sham Benigals, Money Calls, Mrinal Sens, and people like uh, Kumar Shahani. So we had a great blend, you know. Yeah, and there were also lots of actors from the National School of Drama, from the Film and Television Institute of India. Yeah, I think everybody around me was a trained actor. Maybe me and Smita were the only exceptions. Everybody seemed to be trained and and have had this great background of film and theater. Uh, Smita and I were the only two people who hadn't done any training. Would you like to talk a little bit about Smita? Yeah, Smita, somebody I also could relate to on a personal level because we both came from non-filmy backgrounds, were not trained, (laughs) was one thing. Didn't know anything about cinema when we joined you know, except for in the head, you know, when you dream about things. Um, Parents were very academically inclined. So um, that was one thing. And then Smita, I found her to be a very genuine person, very down to earth, very genuine, you know, was the quiet sort, somebody who was not overtly looking for attention all the time. She was not somebody who would need to be the center focus, you know, She was good in her own skin. And I found my comfort zone with her for that reason. We could sit together. We didn't have to yap away. We could communicate in our own silent way also. Though we didn't forever run into each other, didn't really hop in in and out of each other's homes. But whenever we did meet, it was always something deeper and meaningful. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. interaction. I have very fond memories of Smita. There's a huge big painting of mine called Smita and I, and there's also a poem called Smita and I. Wow. The painting is in my studio in Himachal, and the poem is on YouTube, (laughs) recited by me. Yeah. My painting is also on YouTube, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She was a photographer as well as being an actor. Yes, she was very enthusiastic about photography. Mm -hmm. She loved it. She loved taking pictures. Yeah. How did your parents' separation influence the way you wrote about their relationship in the book? Did it, in a way, change how you looked at your childhood in any way? Uh, Yeah, there was those two, three incidents that I remember that left me kind of feeling of great insecurity. I didn't know what it was at that time. I didn't think much about it. Except for the time when those two, three incidents happened. I remember being very, very disturbed by those. But then they were kind of rolled up and put away. And then we continued. Life was seemed fine. And we continued. And my father migrated to the US and we all joined him. Things seemed to be okay. It was only in the later years that my parents separated as a child. It did give me a lot of insecurity for those, just those two, three incidents, which I can't seem to forget, you know. Do you want to talk about them? 
no, not really. I want people to read in my book. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So talk about how moving to another country was probably the biggest change in a person's life. You know, this is how you might have experienced it. In what way did you feel differently about yourself, about the world unfolding around you, about your art, and about moving to New York City? Well, you know, New York is one place that immediately throws you in the midst of so much. You're bound to, you know, develop a tremendous amount of confidence in yourself. It just trains you to go out there and live your life on your terms. That's what it prepares you. It sets you up for that. Because being such a cosmopolitan city, you have so much to look at, so much to observe. There's, I mean, there's a, such an alive, throbbing place to be in. And I was studying there. I was studying those years. I was going to art school. Art school also gives you a great opportunity to look at world art. World art means world's representation of their lives through their art. So that kind of widening your own horizons in a big way. It does. I mean, at that time, you could only sit in libraries and today everything is at hand. You just speak something on YouTube and that documentary or that information is going to pop up and you can go through, you can see, you can educate yourself sitting right in front of your laptop or your television set. And really you can. That opportunity, what the youngsters have today, we didn't have at that time. You still had to go to the library, Hunter College Library, uh, New York Library on 42nd Street. My father used to be in and out of that forever. And uh, he taught uh, English in America, English as a second language and the kind of things that concerned him and he would discuss when he came home, the subject of migration. He wrote a major book on the study of immigrants, the immigrant psyche. It's called Striped Zebra, the Immigrant Psyche. It's a major academic work of his life. He worked towards it for years and years and then came out with this book, which uh, I think should be really read. It's a very detailed account of why do people migrate? What it is to be an immigrant, to be living in another country. How you try to hold on to your own values and yet you have to adapt the system and the values and the culture of the other country where you have migrated to. And how you grow in the process of trying to keep both. It's like one foot in each boat. How you manage to do that. It's a bit challenging. It's a bit unnerving, but... You know, there's this huge curiosity. What if I didn't live this life? I lived something else out there, somewhere else. How do they live? I want to try and live like that. You know, it all stems from there, that your curiosity for life other than what you are born into. So did your father or did your parents embrace their life in America? Did they have regrets? No. I don't think my father ever. My father is a great bhakt of America. <laughs> He's, he, I mean, he loved, he loved America. He loved being there. That's what he thought that he should have forever been in America. He should have been born there. He so loved America. He was very happy to have migrated there. I mean, he didn't even look at India or life in Amritsar with nostalgia the way Mama did, the way I did. You know, the way mama did, 
her life in Burma, her life. She also pined for the house in Amritsar. I pine for it today. It's not there anymore. It had to be demolished because it was falling apart. It had to be sold off. And how I regret that. I mean, I go through pangs of, you know, regret. <laughs> I wish I could have saved the house. I wish I could have lived there. I wish I could have grown old there. But all that is gone. But my father never looked back. My father never looked back. Pitaji, Piti never, he never, you never heard him. I never heard him all my life saying, oh, I wish. I never heard a thing of regret except for having separated with my mom. He said, that should never have happened. He always said, destiny obviously has some part here because otherwise that is one thing which should never have happened in our family. We should never have separated. Mm -hmm. Your mama and I, that's what he used to say. But immigration also puts a lot of pressure on the family, strain yeah. on the family, the process of you know adjusting and adapting to a new life. Yes, yes, I guess. Do you miss America? Do you miss living in America or your life in America? You know, when I come to America, I love coming there. I find things sometimes a little bland, except for when I'm in Manhattan. I love being in Manhattan. I need the energy that Manhattan brings to me. Like you might feel that in your place where you are, if you're in Seattle, you might love the energy that the city gives you. Downtown, the city, you know what it brings to you. I need that as much as I need to get away to my place in Himachal and be alone and then not see anybody, have nothing in my vision except me and my space. You know, I need Manhattan and the energy of Manhattan. And I love sitting with my laptop in a coffee shop and be writing away when there's so much chaos all around, you know, in, in a Starbucks or in any of these regular places. I love that because I can switch off. I know it's all around me. I can switch off and I can go into my inner world and I can just be there with myself as much as I, you know, I like being on the hillside and nobody around and just me in my room and looking out at the mountains, you know. So there's this two <laughs> opposing personalities within me that I have learned to accept. <laughs> I think we all have multiple <laughs> personas. I think we all do. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> yeah. So what are you working on? What's your current project? At the moment, I'm reading two, three scripts. I need to look at them and go back to shooting something. I think I'd like to do a web series or something. If I can get to say yes to a web series, that would be nice. I'm just in the process of reading right now. And I've started my next book. I want to travel a bit this month and next month we'll be sitting down and writing in Himachal. On that note, we can bring this conversation to an end. Thank you so much for your time, Deepthi. Lovely talking to you, Alka. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. The production assistance for this episode was provided by the Language Learning Center at the University of Washington, Seattle, the Student Research Assistant, Anagadhi Risala, the Editor, Alpna Sood, and the Social Media Coordinator, Sana Sheikh.